So listen to this. God created the world for good, and he created it for his glory. When Adam and Eve made their choice, they were damaged. They were damaged by evil, and they were damaged by that choice. And they infected all of humanity. There's not a single human being who has not been impacted by the fall of Adam. The curse that fell on creation, Romans says, all of creation longs like a woman in childbirth to be released from the futility that resulted from the fall. Life is broken. This is not heaven. Heaven's coming, for those of you that know Christ. But life is challenging and hard, and there's troubles, and there's difficulties, and you're in a world where the current is adversarial to the goal of the good God who created all things for his glory. And absent divine intervention, there would be no hope because of the wages of sin is death. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And obviously that wasn't instant physical death, but that was instant spiritual disconnection from the things of God and the ways of God, validated by the fact that one day they would draw their last breath because death physically validates the curse spiritually and in reality. Every time you see someone die, every time you look at death, it validates what was lost through the fall of Adam. But God so loved the world, out of love not earned or deserved, sent his only begotten Son, God the Son, the one of a kind, there is no other. God himself incarnated in human flesh to represent the race of Adam and to do what no human being could do because all have been infected by sin. There needed to be a substitute, an atoner, who wasn't dying or paying the price for their own sin, but would take on the sins of the sinner to bear our judgment. The just consequences of sinful rebellion as a consequence of the fall. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus answered the call willingly. He left the glories and prerogatives and privileges of God and heaven and all the glories attached to that rightful reality, and he exchanged it to become one of us, fully man. To show us God, so we could understand, A, who God is and how a man who follows God ought to live, because Jesus was fully God and fully man. And then there came that day appointed before the world began. In the fullness of time, God not only sent his son, but the son gave himself as a ransom, as a full and just solution, satisfaction, propitiation, as an atonement to pay a price we couldn't pay, to secure a righteousness we cannot earn, to fix what was broken. Through his work, not ours. When Jesus bled and died on the cross, he did in six hours what hell cannot do. Eternal torment does not resolve the separation. But the cross did. And when Jesus came alive from the dead, he validated the acceptance of that sufficient sacrifice that God was appeased, that justice was secured, And now available to all who believe, not through our work, not because we go to Grace Church, not because we give to the poor or put money in the widow's offering. And by the way, uh, Mark asked me, so I'm just a little parenthetical. If you want to write a check, you can write a check, write it to Grace Community Church and put in the memo line, Cornerstone Offering. And then that way uh, we can handle it appropriately if you'd rather write a check. But not because you give a check do you find justification or reconciliation with God. You recognize that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I'm broken beyond remedy. I'm damaged more than I know. 
but God paid a price for me. And I can be forgiven, which is released. And I can be justified, which is more than innocent and released of debt. It is, be de- it is being declared righteous as if I enjoyed the righteousness of Jesus Christ, as if I had lived the life he lived. I get that how? By faith. By trusting alone, relying completely on not my work, but my belief and trust in his work. My belief and trust in what Jesus Christ, God the Son, did for me. That's grace. You know what grace is. It's unmerited favor. That's why our church is named Grace Community Church. Because if there's anything that ought to be elevated in this community besides the name of Jesus, is the way you enjoy the blessing of God through Jesus, which is by grace, through faith, not of our own work, but by his. Jesus Christ is the remedy. He's the rescuer. He's the restorer. And you secure that by trusting him, not yourself, by repenting, which is a way of saying, I'm changing my mind about selfish independence and self-dependence. And I'm repenting, I'm turning, metanoia, I'm changing my mind, I've got sorrow in my heart, I don't like where I am, I realize the end of the path I'm on is destruction, the wages of sin is death. And I repent and I believe. And what happens then? Old things pass away, all things become new. You become a new creation. The work of God that began through drawing you to repentance and faith, continues to work in changing you into a man and woman of faith. By the exercise of his will, you were brought forth as a kind of first fruit, a worship offering to God, so that he, Jesus, the perfect rescuer, the God-man, could be the firstborn of many brothers, many family members that there would be a whole family of Christ-like ones who would bring glory and honor to God by living the way God's Son lived his life, modeled before us in his humanity. Christianity is about being changed, position, point in time, declared to be righteous, given a new nature, And Christianity, and this is where I'm going with that long introduction, is also manifest in sanctification, becoming what you were designed to be in the redemptive work of the gospel. The work of the gospel is not just what happened one time, one place, in some place. It's what goes on daily in the life of a Christian so that your faith manifests itself in the way it lives today. Faith without evidence, faith without works. Our author in James chapter 1 would say, or James chapter 2 rather, would say that that faith, it's useless. Oh, foolish fellow. That kind of faith where you profess it and don't manifest and validate it by the way you live, is a useless faith. It's dead faith. What is that? Even the demons in hell believe and they tremble, but they have the transforming work of the faith that changes a life. Justification must be connected to sanctification. Sanctification must be connected to justification. And if that makes sense, would you say amen? Yes. You say, I know that. I want to remind you of that. Because you can go through spiritual motions. You can think you're religious, a true worshiper, and not be. James is the evidence of real Christianity. It's how a Christian lives. This is what genuine faith looks like. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 27. As we finish up, the third evidence of true faith. 
verses 26 through 27, real Christians have a religion seen in reality. They don't just talk it, they live it. They walk their worship. How? By controlling their tongue, by visiting the vulnerable, by helping the helpless. And where we're going to pick up today in our journey into chapter 2 is by staying unstained. The garments of real Christianity are charity and purity, not just religious formality. Genuine faith is proven by how it talks, by how proactively it cares for the most vulnerable, and how it avoids proactively worldly compromise. Verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion, an axiomatic statement. It's a law. It's unchangeable. It's eternal. This is pure and undefiled religion. This is what God finds in the sight, in his sight and in his presence, most honorable and admirable, most pure and pristine is to visit the vulnerable, orphans and widows in their distress. That's why we're taking an offering, to give you tools and means, not just to give money, but to invest yourself. We want to identify who it is in our fellowship that would need support as a widow, a single woman or a woman single by divorce or, or death, alone, in need, no family to care for them, no support coming. They need help. We want to provide support in that way. Orphans, children without the leadership and provision and protection of a father, we want to provide leadership and help, and we're trying to give you ways to do that because God honors that. He applauds that. He elevates that. But it's not just compassionate charity. In this generation, young Christians, oh, they love this social expression of the gospel. But attached to it is this phrase, which we touched on last week, keep one and the connective, to keep oneself unstained by the world, to guard and to protect, to self-protect, to self-police, so that there is no blemish. It's in the emphatic position. This, in this verse, purity matters. And it's a present infinitive, which means this is to be a proactive pursuit. Not, it's not casual. It's not reactive. It's proactive to protect yourself from the world, the cosmos. I talked about the fall. Everything was infected by the fall. The God of this world, our enemy, the deceiver, the murderer, the liar from the beginning. He is the God of this world. He's the prince of darkness. The world's systems, the cosmos, the ordered design of the world in which you live and traffic and do life. School system, media, workplace, neighbors, neighborhood. Wherever you are, there is an influence. It's designed influence. It's not accidental. It's not evolving. It's purposed. And it's purposed to promote some things. Fundamentally, it's to promote a life apart from God. It is adversarial to the honor and the will of God, the creator who is good. It is designed to promote the priority of things, not God. It's idolatrous. It's a deception. And it includes 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It involves things that stimulate you to want to materially acquire things because you need them, because more is better, newer and nicer is desirable. And there's a whole system designed to stimulate the investment of resources that are to be stewarded for the glory of God and the purposes of God to be spent on ourselves. You don't have to invite the media to promote that priority. It happens. It's the world in which you live, and you're to keep yourself unstained from it, uninfluenced by it. 
There's the desire of the flesh, the stain of carnal gratification. You know what I mean. Fleshly gratification outside of the prescriptive revelation of a good God. When God says don't, he means it for your benefit, not just his glory. Holiness of heart, holiness of body, holiness of mind. It's to our advantage, not our disadvantage. God is not a killjoy. He's a life giver. And the world would suggest gratification through the flesh is the means to satisfaction. And then there's the stain of the pride of life, personal elevation. The one that says I'm somebody, sells a lifestyle and the toxin of I need to go first class because I am first class. Look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. This is the Nebuchadnezzar mindset. He, he had it in steroids because he had something to look at. Look at the city I have built. But there's not a human being alive who's not influenced by a mindset that wants to promote self and the pride of life. We're desperate for it. It's in our human nature and our depravity, and the world massages that. Hey, what's your title? Oh, hey, let me tell you about where I've been and who I know. Let me tell you where I just traveled to and what I just bought. Proactively, defensively, protect yourself from the sources of inspiration and stimulation that promote that. If you're a businessman, it's not uncommon to buy the, buy the books, to subscribe to the magazines and the, the tutors of fine business protocol and practice, best practices, and housed in all of that. I'm not saying you shouldn't read to benefit. I'm saying be careful because of the priorities and the passions that underline those pursuits can easily become about money, expansion, growth, wealth. The goal of God is not your wealth. The goal of God is to leverage your wealth for things that matter. Buy a book that promotes that. Protect yourself. Fleshly stimuli, how far do you have to look in this culture? There's playoff games today, NFL. You don't care about that either, but I still do. There are things that are going to be promoted by way of the media that are meant to stimulate not the best parts of me. One of you asked me, am I going to record the national championship? I am, and I'm recording those games today in the event that I have the time to watch some of that. But I record not just so I don't have to watch the commercials, so that I'm protected from the commercials. You say, Harry, you're a legalist. No, I'm not. Prevention is worth a pound of cure. I'd rather avoid a temptation than have to fight one. The Lord's Prayer, do you remember it? Lead us not into temptation. And if I happen to get myself in a pickle, rescue me from it. Deliver me from evil. Keep yourself unstained from the world. And I was giving you some practical outworkings, what I'm calling... Christian action. Success depends on some key commitments. We talked about avoiding it. That's the first commitment. This is prevention. Don't go near the door of her house, Proverbs 5, 8 says of the immoral woman. Stay away. Avoiding involves anticipation and attention. I'm paying attention. I know that there are potential places. I've been to Europe multiple times. Some of you have. It's not a safe, moral, holy ground. It'd be like going to New Orleans or Vegas or parts of Los Angeles. The places that you know are going to promote the things of the flesh. Pay attention. Don't be careless. Be on the alert. I detailed my car this week spent time to do the wheels and the interior and the glass and hand-washed it. It was interesting when I was driving out 
how alert I was to potential debris that could dirty up my car. I live on a dirt road, which is an enormous obstacle for someone like me. And I also live on a road that is the neighborhood horse trail. Do you know what horses do? They do it on my road. Walking or driving out of my little dirt road, three houses down, I was really careful. I went really slow to avoid all of the debris and dirt. You know why? Because I valued the work I just did. It occurred to me, I wonder if we would be so careful with our soul and the work that God is doing and wants to do to be a guardian, to be protective. Avoid it. I also talked last week about learning from it. When you fumble the ball, when you, sometimes you don't know. I parked my car not too long ago by one of the walls, uh, parking areas at the university, not knowing that because it was early, the sprinklers hadn't come on and my car got sprinkled. You know what hard California water does to a car? I mean, spots everywhere. How many of you think Harry's going to park by the wall in the morning? No chance. Now, listen, I didn't know, but I now know. So guess what? My behavior changes. Some of you need to learn. You find places that you didn't know were going to be a source of corruption, and you need to learn. Don't beat yourself up by what you didn't know. Learn from it. Thirdly, run from it. This is Joseph. The world is proactively pursuing you. Proverbs 7 says the woman comes out to meet him. Sin is aggressive. The flesh is aggressive. The world doesn't need an invitation. They're soliciting. When they solicit, when they grab your garment like Joseph, run. I assume he had no options to not be in the house when she was in the house. Some of you are in places that make you vulnerable. You have to be there. My assumption is he was, but when push come to shove, he had to get out of the house. Here's the fourth one. Deal with it. Learn from it, avoid it, run from it. And when you are soiled, spotted, or stained by the world, deal with it. John 17, verse 15, the high priestly prayer, Jesus to his Father, prayer is not, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, but they are in it. Fact you will be influenced and impacted by it. What do you do when you are and you recognize it? You deal with it. How do you deal with it? We all know this. This is 1 John 1.9. You confess it. You forsake it, the proverb says. He who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. Do you know the Old Testament, there were sacrifices offered for sins of presumption, sins that you didn't know you committed. You can do things and then become aware, you know what? I'm corrupted. I've got attitudes and appetites that are carnal. I'm proud. I'm chasing material things. I've got motives that have been infected and affected. When you're aware of it, ask the Holy Spirit by the promise of the Power of the gospel, present tense, confess your sin, homo legeo, declare it for what it is, don't dodge and weave. Listen, I know this dishonors you, and I'm asking you by this confession to forgive me, to release me, and you know what the rest of the verse says? Cleanse me. I need washed. Take a moment, turn over to John 13. You need to ask for daily washing. Because you live in a dirty world. This is the second part of deal with it, confess it, and then ask for cleansing from it. It's a famous story. It's the modeling of servant leadership. It's the most worthy one doing the most humble thing. 
Jesus the one of the highest rank? Verse 3, chapter 13, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Jesus fully knowing his high station. Verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, which was the job of the lowest of the low. Sandals, dirt, mud, feet. Not hands, feet. He washed the disciples' feet and he wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. And when he came to Simon Peter, verse 6, he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, what are you doing? You're going to do this for me or to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do to you, you do now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. It's below you. Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash your feet, this is sobering, you have no part with me. Well, that got his attention, so he said in response, verse 9, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I, if, you're, if this is true, the feet matter, wash all of me. And then this interesting statement, verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, a reference to Judas, because he hadn't been spiritually bathed. In other words, the man who has been bathed is clean, Peter, but his feet coming in contact, contact with the dust and the dirt of a fallen world need to be washed. And so it is morally. They had all been cleansed. You become cleansed from the inside out. You're clean through the gospel and through justification. But you walk in a dirty world. You're exposed to corruption every day. You get polluted and you need to be cleansed from it. I mean, even that day, contextually, before they got to the upper room, they had this discussion. So which one of us is going to be the greatest? You know what I'd call that? The pride of life the appetite for position and place. Even that day, they had been soiled by a mindset that was a part of the fallen world. I need to wash your feet. I'm going to argue that you need to be alert to and to make it your practice more often than not to invite the Savior who is humbly willing to wash your spiritual feet from the things you get exposed to. Some of you do ministry, as I have, in places that are dark. Some of you do counseling and have conversations with people that are tough to hear and will mark you. Every counseling session I have that involves certain subject matter, and I'm careful with what I allow to be said in my presence, but certain subject matter, when those people leave, I ask the foot washer to wash my feet. Because you get exposed to things, and you're to keep yourself unstained. And when you realize that I've been exposed, maybe significantly exposed to the carnal current of the culture, I need a bath. You're in the world, but you're not of it. But being in it, Undeniably, you'll get inadvertently stained by it. Deal with it. Manifest, here's a conclusion for this verse. Manifest and maintain a lifestyle of charity and purity so that you can offer to God true worship. In his sight, he would applaud. He may even brag. He would do that? We well, did in the Old Testament. Turn over to Job 31. I'm going to give you an example. And we're getting to chapter 2. 
and we've got two weeks to do it. So I'm not nervous in case you are. But I didn't want to rush past this example. You know who Job is. James was the oldest book written in the New Testament. Subject matter of the book of Job is the oldest content in the Old Testament, absent the uh, creation story. This is the oldest book potentially in the Old Testament. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Remember what God was doing in chapter 1? Bragging. Matter of fact, Job chapter 1, God is communicating to the God of this world you to look at my servant. There was a man in the land of Uz, verse 1, chapter 1, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, and fearing God. He was a true worshiper. And what did he do? Turned away from evil. In this unstained, in this context. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered, now Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the one in the garden who brought to such a destructive temptation, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, a true worshiper, real religion, and he turns away from evil. Remember that? Turn over to chapter 31, and I want you to hear the testimony of that man. I'm going to call it a the testimony of a real worshiper, a genuine God-fearing man and a God-pleasing man. He's been assessed by God as that kind of man, but with all of his difficulty, he's been accused that his difficulty is the consequence that he wasn't a worshiper, that it was his lack of honor, it was his lack of integrity, it was his lack of genuine God-honoring behavior that resulted in his despair and in his difficulty. And in chapter 31, he's asserting his integrity, his response to that accusation. And I want you to look at verse 6 as he references God. Let him, capital H, God, weigh me with accurate scales Let God know my integrity, which is a way of saying, I have been integrous. I was what God said I was. I was a true worshiper. I was a real God follower. And I want God to weigh me. I'm God honoring. Look at my life and assess me. Let God weigh me. I would not be God-honoring, and then he has a series of ifs, and that's what I want to highlight. And I want you to notice, this is parallel thinking. I am integrous, and I would not be integrous if. I am a God-fearer, and I wouldn't be a God-fearer if. Watch the parallel of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look for the parallel of I live an unstained life. Listen to his testimony, verse 7. I do have integrity and I want God to weigh me. And if my step has turned from the way, that's the way of God, the way of righteous living, or my heart followed my eyes. Sound like the lust of the eyes? I saw it, I wanted it, I pursued it. If my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, if I've been stained and soiled by the action of my life, let me sow and another reap. Let my crops be uprooted. In other words, I deserve the judgment because I wouldn't have been integrous. I wouldn't have been God-honoring. I would not have been a God-fearer. I would have departed from the way because I was spotted, because I was chasing the things that my eyes were seeing. That's the idea. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, 
In other words, if I've looked at a woman with lust, verse 1, verse now by verses 9 through 12, by looking at a woman, not my wife, and pursuing immorality and adultery, I'm going to call that the lust of the flesh, then I'm deserving, verse 10, and my wife, may she grind for another, let others kneel down over her, for that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity only punishable by judges, for it would be fire that consumes to abaddon and would uproot all my increase. Catastrophic failure for me and for my wife, if I'm guilty of lustful, proactive longings, the lust of the flesh. Or, verse 13, if I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves. Think of the words that we're about to read in chapter 2, impartiality. I treat people differently based on the perception of their station. If I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then would I do when God arises and when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? Now watch verse 15. Did he? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? That's a reference to the female and the male slaves. And the same one fashion us in the womb? They're my equal. Yes, they have social status less than me, but I didn't treat their complaint as if they didn't have validity because they're equal to me in their worth and value and dignity as one made in the image of God like me. Unstained by looking at my slaves, male or female, with partiality and without equity. That would be making me guilty of something worthy of this judgment or calamity. Verses 16 through 23, he moves from pursuing immorality, the lust of the flesh, to behaving with partiality, don't do that, to neglecting charity. Think widows and orphans. Listen to what he says. If I have kept the poor, remember this is a blameless true God worshiper. I'm worthy of judgment if, as such a claimer, if I have kept the poor from their desire, verse 16, or I have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, so you have poor and widows, or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, Verse 18 is hyperbole. He's saying, but from my youth, he, the orphan, grew up with me as with a father. In other words, I lent whatever leadership and protection and provision I could, even as a young man, as a youth, and from infancy, that's hyperbole. In other words, all my life, I guided her. Who's the her? The widow. I have always been concerned about the orphan and the widow. That's the testimony of my life from the time I was young. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the need, if his loins have not thanked me, not heard the response of someone blessed and benefited by my provision, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw and I had support in the gate, here's what I deserve. I wouldn't be a God worshiper. What I'd be is someone who should have his shoulder fall from the socket, my arm be broken off at the elbow. Tell me that's not vivid. Rip my arm out of its socket. If I've neglected the needy, I'm spotted by the world. I'm not a God-fearer. I'm not a God-worshipper. If I've neglected them, the widow and the most vulnerable, I deserve consequences. Verse 23, here's the engine, I think, for all of his passion, his conviction and motivation. For calamity from God is a terror to me. And because of his majesty, I can do nothing. In other words, I would never misstep or mistreat anyone because I fear the Lord and I know that he would certainly deal with me if I defected morally or I neglected materially. I'm in awe of God. And I'm terrified to face the avenger of the widow and the orphan. I have integrity 
And if I've not behaved in a way that integrous God-fearers and God-worshippers to behave, I'm worthy of catastrophic loss and enduring the judgment and the terror of the Lord, and I'm not going to let that happen. Verse 24, if I have put my confidence in gold, this is going to be the pride of life. If I put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because of my wealth and its greatness, because my hand had secured so much, look at me, look at what I have, look at my things, look at my position. If I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been iniquity calling for judgment. In other words, here's the pride of life. If you've seen this, me trusting in gold and displaying that mindset by practicing false religion, this whole business with the sun and kissing has to do with this kind of worship of the created world by practicing false religion religion and worshiping the created and not the creator. Look at the last part of this verse, for I would have denied God above. Denying God instead of worshiping him by worshiping something that isn't him, something he has made lesser than him. Following my eyes and soiling my hands would look like the pursuit of immorality, the expression of partiality, the neglecting of charity, the expression of the pride of life, which results, listen to me, in idolatry. And I fear the Lord. I worship him. And I'm terrified of doing things that would dishonor him. That's the heart of a blameless man. And that should be the expression of a Christian heart. Endowed with the work of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the revelation of the Scriptures. Let me say it another way. I des- this is what Job would say if he were, your test- he were your speaker today. I deserve judgment. Every God professor, God fearer who makes the claim, I, de- I would deserve judgment if I have left the way of God by following my eyes by being spotted or soiled or stained by the desiring of things of the world and by displaying the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life as demonstrated in moral uncleanness, verses 9 through 12, material selfishness, and by the needs of others, callousness. And by worshiping the pride of my life, in the pride of my life, something other than God. Cornerstone Fellowship, stay unstained. And certainly don't make the claim that you are a true God worshiper if you're not willing to inventory and protect the things that provide for the testimony that the world can say, that's a God worshiper. And perchance, God would say, Look at him. Look at her. They're a true Christian by the way they live and the choices they make. That's my prayer for you and my challenge to you. Job is an example and a testimony of the priority of that pursuit. Can you say amen to that? So how we do it? This is a new year. This is where you draw the line and say, you know what? Whatever was, this year can be different. I'm making some adjustments. I'm cutting out some things that I've observed are detrimental to my health and my progress. All right, let me give you an assignment. James chapter 2. Real Christianity, this is 2 through 13, we're going to, verses 1 through 13, chapter 2. I'm going to read the section, I'm going to invite you to give some reflection to it, and then I'm going to unpack it more fully 
next week. Real Christians treat all people equally. Genuine faith is proven by how fairly and equitably it treats all people. Real Christians assess by the things that matter, not by the things that don't matter. They don't measure the outward things. They don't do what men do. They do what Christians do and what God does. This is a prohibitive. This is what Christians don't ever do. Matter of fact, the the tense of the verb is, and if you're doing this, you need to stop it, and you need to stop it right now. There's two emphatic words in verse 1. The one is stop, and the other is glory. Starts with stop because someone's worthy of glory, and he loses what he justly deserves if you display this behavior as a professing Christian. My brethren, verse 1, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Literally, it's stop displaying personal favoritism. Literally, the verse ends with, and hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to me, the Lord of glory. My translator in the New American Standard, and if you're an ESV person today, and I like my translation better than yours, except I don't like it here, because it says glorious Lord Jesus, certainly true that he is glorious but it is literally the Lord of the glory. And if you have an ESV, it reads the Lord of glory. It's a definite article. It's a possessive genitive. And it's a way of saying your faith is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he possesses the glory. And you're to stop being partial. You're to stop receiving by faith. That's literally what the word partial means. It means to discriminate by what you see and only by what you see. Stop it. Because when you do it, you deface and you diminish the one who is worthy of the glory that will come to him if you hold your faith in him in a way that honors him. Partiality and prejudice diminish the glory of God that is meant to be seen through his people. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ in an attitude of personal favoritism. Here's a picture. For if a man comes into your assembly, he's going to give an example as if they just said, what do you mean? The word comes is the word for visit. It's a momentary historical era. He just comes in like some of our visitors today. First time here. We're talking about you. Comes into our group. Never saw him before. He's in our midst. We're assessing him. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, those are designer jeans, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, blue collar, just been to work, didn't have a chance to go home and change. Poor man comes in with dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one. You eye him, you you assess him, you evaluate him, and you give him special attention to the one who's wearing the designer clothes, and you say, sit here in a good place, think chief seats, VIP, you come to the front, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down by my footstool, think cheap seats. Or, hey, we don't have any more seats. Why don't you just stand in the back? All assessed by what you see. Verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, there's problems with that way of thinking. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So you have a theological problem if you do this. In this case, you have a legal or a rational, logical problem. Do they, verse 7, not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? 
Verse 8, if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you discriminate by outward things that ought not be the measure of a man or a woman, you are, watch this, committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless for the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's your assignment. This is where we're going to be next week. Absolutely no partiality, prejudice, distinctions based on outward things in my family because I deserve glory. And when you misrepresent me, you deface my glory. In what ways do you think we're prone to do that? In what ways, and here's my key word, do we subtly do that? Let's think our way through this passage and recognize that we're all tempted to assess prematurely on things that don't matter. And that really matters. Father, thank you for the time to study your word today. And as we anticipate this section, which is so pregnant with perspectives that would challenge our propensity and our humanity to measure people, to treat people to have attitudes toward people based on criteria that should never define them. Lord, help us to be alert to the ways that we diminish glory that is rightfully yours, even in the church. This is a gathering of believers. Help us to be faithful to this priority, to the end that Jesus is honored. And then, Lord, help us to do inventory, even at the beginning of this year, where we're exposed, maybe unnecessarily, to the culture, to the influence of the culture, things we read, music we listen to, places we go, stuff we choose in discretion to be exposed to that corrupt us. Help us to be wise and prudent. And then for the person here that is dirty today, they would confess it and they would ask you to wash their feet so they can enjoy fellowship with you and service for you in a way that brings glory to you. I commit Cornerstone to you in Jesus' name. Amen.